host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kurnikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review, leaving a five-star rating, and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. So today we're going to be in Valley Forge. Oh, I guess it's appropriate to be cold then, huh? (laughs) It was cold then, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's what they say. Okay, so here's how, just to give you your bearings, this is how close Valley Forge is to Philadelphia today. It's basically like a park, kind of think of, you know, kind of surrounded by city. Here's a closer shot of what that park looks like. I mean, no, it's just on a map. But so you see, it's got a little bit of a forested area, but it's surrounded by like houses and Walgreens and stuff like that. Taking this class makes me want to go ahead and make a trip to the East Coast. I've never wanted to before. And here is a wider shot of Philadelphia, and then it doesn't have Valley Forge on there, but it's really near the town called King of Prussia. And then you can see from here, you can also see York. Lancaster and reading. Uh, my research, I found something that said that when the British took over Philadelphia, the state government and the Second Continental Congress evacuated to Lancaster, and the Second Continental Congress set up long term or long, you know, for the next couple months in York. But the Pennsylvania government, the governor. And the governor's council stayed in Lancaster, but I found some evidence that suggested that the Pennsylvania legislature set up in Reading for some reason. Either way, York, Lancaster, and Reading shows you that Valley Forge would be between, it's to the north and west of Philadelphia, so if the British ever set out from Philadelphia to try to go attack the Second Continental Congress, the governor of Pennsylvania or the Pennsylvania state legislature, they're going to be in the way. That's part of the reason why Valley Forge was chosen. So, back to that first one. Valley Forge is about 18 miles outside of Philadelphia. It is on the high ground, so it's not like a mountain, but it's a little bit higher than the surrounding neighborhoods and certainly higher than Philadelphia itself. Philadelphia, for all intents and purposes, is just a few feet above sea level because it's it basically marks the point where the Delaware River basically it reaches sea level. So, like Philadelphia actually does have docks that for ships that go out to sea, even though 
it's actually, oh, this map's not showing it, but right down here. Yeah, yeah, right down there, south of Wilmington, you can see all that. That's all sea level right there. And so Philadelphia basically marks the point where you're kind of both the river and also the sea. It's, am I making myself clear? It's kind of the, if you go further up the, the river, you're more into river, you're going to be going uphill. Philadelphia, for all intents and purposes, is right at sea level. So Valley Forge is a little bit higher and marks a high point. So if the British ever wanted to attack... See, here's the thing. If George Washington, when he had picked a spot, he had to pick a spot where he could defend the Second Continental Congress and the Pennsylvania government if he had the chance. But if I were the British, I'm not worried about the... I'm certainly not worried about the Philadelphia state governments. I'm not going to be all that worried about the Second Continental Congress. What I really need to do is I really need to attack George Washington's army and destroy enough of the army to take away their ability to make war. Because that's the only way the British win. The American patriots win by surviving. If they can outlast the British willingness to be at war on another continent, then, then we win. But the British need to take away the Americans' ability to continue on. And so picking Valley Forge was really important because not only are you in a position where you can defend the governments in exile to the west, but if the British were to attack Valley Forge, they would have to go uphill. So, But you, you know what bugs me? Because we're used to this day and age. We just get in our car and go from point A to point B. They didn't do that. And the weather was bad. How long did it take them to get? Oh, to march an army, 18 miles? You could yeah. probably do it in a day if you had good weather. <laughs> you could probably march an army that long, but you'd have to get a you'd have to have a good start in the day. This time, a lot of the weather wasn't good. We're actually you were going to get to that, and so uh, just just a minute. Go right ahead. I'm just going to show you our son and his family for a few years lived in Easton. Uh, by Allentown. Well. Yeah, the Easton is on the Delaware River. That's oh, the Delaware okay. River. And uh, that's where Washington crossed the Delaware. Down by Trenton, or uh, north, north of Trenton. North of Trenton. So Valley Forge is a good strategic position to defend the political people that had to leave Philadelphia. It's a hard place to attack for the British. It is also close enough to Philadelphia that it allows George Washington to keep an eye on Howe's army. So some people wanted Washington to get, you know, a fair decent way away for safety reasons. But if you if he went it down into Delaware, if he went into New Jersey, he's he's not going to be able to react if the British decide to do anything. Well, he wasn't a partier like the No, and well it's unclear to me just how much partying Howe did. The, he, he liked, you know, dinner parties and stuff, but I think he liked comfort more than anything. And the last thing he wanted to be was in a cabin 18 miles outside of Philadelphia. He wanted to be in Philadelphia. And so when Washington chose a spot to winter, Valley Forge ended up meeting all the criteria he needed to. And so he took his army to this little place that was named after an early ironworks in the Skullkill River Valley. So the Skullkill River is a small river that runs into the Delaware, basically today in Philadelphia. 
I mean, if you, like, if somebody asked me where I live, if I lived in, like, Overland Park, and, and somebody from Erie said, hey, where are you living today? I'm going to say, I'm going to say Kansas City. That's just how we tend to think. You know, if, if it's the urban area, Kansas City. So with that eerie mindset, yes, that's all Philadelphia. Valley Forge and all that that's area. Terry says, Kansas City. It's all Philadelphia. The name Valley Forge come because it was an old ironworks, an old Quaker ironworks near the Skullkill River Valley. Now, in the common retelling of Valley Forge, it is that it was an unbelievably harsh winter, which you guys have already echoed a few times. What surprised me as I was doing my research is it actually appears that it was a reasonably mild winter, which surprised me a lot until I thought about it, and I realized that the problem wasn't that the winter itself was overly harsh, that it was the perception was that it was very harsh because the Continental Army didn't have proper clothing, and if you don't have proper clothing, any winter is harsh. And no shoes. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and so, yeah, those are saying, especially if you don't have shoes of all things. So it could be 31 degrees, you know, real mild for winter. 31 degrees, two or three inches of snow, and if you're not wearing shoes, you're miserable. The Absolutely miserable. Oh, yeah. Well, some people had shoes. Some did. But, but some there did. just weren't enough shoes to go around. And also, by the way, even mild winters have their moments. So... Winter 2023 and 2024, the winter we're coming out of right now, has actually been quite mild. I think we can agree on that. Yeah. It's been a pretty mild winter. And yet, in six, seven years, when I think back, the image that's going to come back for me about this winter was watching Patrick Mahomes get hit and it being so cold outside that his helmet shattered and a chunk of the helmet ran off because oh and the, yeah the, they had that wal walrus mustache and, and everybody on TikTok and on Twitter showing how their beers were frozen in fact there was one of the people that ran the concession stands showed that they had mineral water or something in the refrigerator and in the refrigerator was actually much warmer than outside so they would they opened the, the door took the mineral water out of the refrigerator and you could see it start to freeze as they held it in their hand. And that, that was in the middle of one of the mildest winters we've had in a long time. And so because of that one two or three day window, including January the 13th when we played the Dolphins, on that day it was negative four at kickoff in Kansas City. It was about two degrees here. But up in Kansas City it was negative four at kickoff, negative eight degrees by the end, and negative 27 wind chill. It's the fourth coldest NFL game ever played. So that's going to be what we remember in seven or eight years. We're not going to remember that the, you know, yeah, the winter was pretty mild. We're going to remember Patrick's helmet shattering and, and a chunk flying off. Well, in Philadelphia, it's farther north than us. It's they further can. north than us, but it's also a lot closer to the ocean. So the ocean will moderate, not always, but it will often moderate weather patterns. So that's one of the reasons why people in New York, Philadelphia, that region will will be amazed that here the weather swings from about negative 10 to about 110 throughout the year, usually. You know, we, we won't always hit negative 10 and we won't always hit 110, but that's not, that's a pretty standard yearly swing for us, about 120 degree swing. And it just blows people's mind who, for them, their swing might be 60, 65 degrees. So the, a lot of those cities will go from about 15 to 
Well, okay, so 65 might be a bit, but from 15 to 80, 85 degrees would be not uncommon, especially at places like Seattle that are really moderated by the Pacific Ocean. It just doesn't get that hot and it doesn't get that cold. Now, Philadelphia gets a lot, if you're on the Atlantic coast, it gets, you do experience a lot colder than you do on the Pacific coast. Okay. I'm not enough of a scientist or a meteorologist to explain it, but... Okay, so the winter was, I, I, don't, I wouldn't call it mild, but it, was, it wasn't like the worst winter they'd ever seen, as the stories often get told. But it was super miserable. And the Army did suffer from a lack of resources. The Army in Valley Forge never had enough food. They often had to eat such things as soup made from corn husks. Ew. So they chop up the corn husk real small and boil it, and it make, you know, it, it's at least some nutrition. Something to eat. <laughs> it's something to eat. The army had to send foraging parties into rural Pennsylvania, and sometimes as far as New Jersey or Delaware, to try to get any food. And as we've already discussed, there weren't enough shoes for the whole army. Some soldiers had to wear rags or, or had to improvise some kind of feet covering and of those that did have shoes most of those shoes weren't really winter boot type shoes most soldiers probably did have a coat but probably totally inadequate for the needs of a winter in Philadelphia therefore it was during this time that George Washington developed a deep intolerance for weak central governments now I haven't been able to conclusively prove this, but I, I'll give you my suspicion. My suspicion is that George Washington probably before the war was a lot closer to Patrick Henry. We discussed Patrick Henry a couple weeks ago. Very, very libertarian. The government should be small, it should be inexpensive, and it should do as little as possible to maintain your liberty. And it shouldn't take away from your liberty. My suspicion is George Washington probably agreed with Patrick Henry before the war. The problem was George Washington was on the front line and saw just how weak a small central government that cannot raise funds, just how bad it can be in that situation. The Second Continental Congress was completely inept to fund and maintain an army, especially in a time of war. Now, that doesn't take away from what they accomplished. They did great work in terms of policy, they did great work in terms of diplomacy, remembering that diplomatic doors were not opening. Even the French, and the French were wanting, they were, they were looking for an opportunity, they were looking for an excuse to start diplomatic relations with the United States of America, and even they didn't do it until after Saratoga. We had to have a big win before they would even do it. So diplomatic doors weren't opening, and yet our diplomats in that scenario still did a great job. And, of course, they worked together building a consensus until they got to the point where they finally decided that they needed to achieve independence, and they wrote a pretty darn good document to achieve that independence. So the Second Continental Congress wasn't worthless. However, the Second Continental Congress had extremely limited fundraising abilities. And if you can't raise funds, then you don't have money. And if you don't have money, you cannot fund an army. And you need an army to maintain the independence that you have thus declared. And so, jumping ahead a little bit, when the war was over, and the Congress that was under the Articles of Confederation, we will cover that in a few weeks, the Congress under the Articles was, was still very, very weak, so weak that it couldn't 
pay its debts, Washington wasn't a fan. He did not like the government under the Articles of Confederation. So when Washington's protege, Alexander Hamilton, and another young man who Washington, I wouldn't call him a protege, but they were from the same state, James Madison, when Hamilton and Madison started pushing for a new constitution with a strong central government, Washington was on board. And you can draw a straight line from Valley Forge to that moment. We will come back to Valley Forge, of course, but let's tell an immigrant story. So the story of the American Revolution is incomplete without telling the story of three immigrants. The first is Alexander Hamilton, born January 11th, but we don't actually know the year. He was probably born in 1757, but some of his documents list his birth as 1755. This was probably done to make him employable at 15, so he could be treated as an adult when he was probably actually 13 at the time. So where was this 13-year-old acting like a 15-year-old? Where was he at? Well, he was from a a little island in the Caribbean called Nevis. N-E-V-I-S. N-E-V-I-S, right there. Yeah, and most of us know, most of us actually have heard of Nevis because it's part of the country, St. Kitts and Nevis. So you've probably heard that on uh, a, some commercial about a cruise at some point, I'm sure. that It's a beautiful little set of islands. Is that considered part of the West Indies? Yes. Okay, that's, that's right. When, it, when you read books and they're talking about the West Indies, they're talking about all of the islands in the Caribbean from Cuba all the way down to the smallest islands, and probably also Bermuda and the Bahamas as well. The term West Indies was coined in order to differentiate it from the East Indies, which is Indonesia, the Philippines. What does Indies mean? I'm pretty sure it comes from the word India. Oh, okay. So the East Indies are the islands that, so if you you come off the Indian subcontinent, and then if you were on a ship, if you were to wrap around China up to Japan, you would go through the East Indies. So it would be all those, those islands. And the West Indies are just are to differentiate from the East Indies. So you, that's all of the islands in the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. And if you were to include the Bahamas and Bermuda, then you would, it, it would be the Caribbean, the Gulf of Mexico, and the Atlantic, Middle Atlantic, I suppose. All right, good question. Now, Alexander Hamilton came from very humble origins. His mother was a woman by the name of Rachel. Rachel left her first husband and a son to shack up with a man she met named James Hamilton. Who is James Hamilton? He was the fourth son of a large landowner from Scotland. I had thought that he was some kind of minor nobility, but I couldn't find any evidence from it. But the Hamiltons were large landowners in Scotland. But James Hamilton was the fourth son and probably was not in any position to really inherit much of that. Hamilton, James Hamilton was also a bit of a no-account loser. He and Rachel Levine, that was her name, and her two sons through James Hamilton James Jr. and Alexander, they checked up together, but she faced charges of bigamy because it was alleged and probably true that she did not have a divorce from 
her first husband. Probably because of that, either to protect himself or as he often said he was trying to protect her, James left Rachel and the boys. Now, James Hamilton would have a rocky relationship with his son. James Hamilton would live well into Alexander Hamilton's adulthood, and they would have infrequent contact. Alexander Hamilton would even provide money for his father, but it was never a very good relationship. So Rachel and her two sons moved to St. Croix, which is the island where she was from. So that's St. Kitts and Nevis. That shows you in the West Indies where Nevis is, so it's kind of at the point where you have the big islands turn into the small islands. And that is St. Croix. And that city there, that town there, Christiansted, was the town where they moved to. Rachel developed yellow fever and died in 1761, when Alexander Hamilton was 11 officially, but probably 9. Her first husband then went to court and got a court order, and he took all of her possessions, and the boys were left with nothing. That first husband took most of those possessions and auctioned them off and took the monetary value. A family friend, though, was able to rescue 39 books and return them to Alexander Hamilton for him to continue his self-education. The tragedy is just building, folks. The boys were taken in by a cousin who soon then took his own life. So if you're following here now, Alexander has a mother who has died, but before that she was accused of bigamy, honestly was probably guilty of it. He was the result of an affair. He and his brother were the results of an affair. His dad was a bit of a loser. He, he gets taken in by a cousin who commits suicide. At this point, James Jr. is apprenticed off to a carpenter, and Alexander goes to live with a merchant. So he ends up as a clerk with a company called Beekman and Kruger, a local import-export firm on St. Kitts. He was born on Nevis, he spent his childhood on St. Croix, and now he's on St. Kitts. This firm, Beekman and Kruger, specialized in trade with New York and New England. And so this begins his connection with the eventual United States, which will continue throughout his entire life. Now, it is during this time while working for Beekman and Kruger that Alexander Hamilton almost certainly was involved with a lot of business that involved slavery. It is unlikely that he ever owned slaves, though. Is it possible that he benefited financially from slavery, though? Almost certainly. And so this is interesting because later in life, Alexander Hamilton would be moderately anti-slavery. And compared to other founding fathers he was actually quite anti-slavery because there was only a handful of, of founding fathers that ever became vocally anti-slavery. Most of the ones who were anti-slavery were like John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, who were moderately anti-slavery, and I would put Alexander Hamilton in that camp as well. And surprisingly, also people like George Washington, James Madison, and Thomas Jefferson, who had slaves, but at least in their writings gave a lot of lip service to believing slavery was evil and they hoped that one day it would fall apart. So I would count them as at least a little bit on the anti-slavery spectrum. But just like a toe. Just a toe on that spectrum. Later generations of Virginians and other Southerners would abandon that spectrum altogether and they would preach that 
Slavery was an affirmed good for the economy, for the white people, and even for the black people, which is an utterly ridiculous falsehood. All right, let me find my place in my notes again. Many were impressed with Alexander Hamilton's intellectual gifts, even at such a young age. He did so well as a clerk that the owners of the firm left him in charge of it for five months while they went out to sea in the year 1771. His age was either 14 or 16 at this time. So officially 16, probably 14. Yeah, for five months in 1771, he was in charge of the firm. Or he was left in charge of the firm. A hurricane came through and devastated the island, and he wrote about the devastating hurricane in such excellent prose in a letter, I believe, to his father. But it was... I think the letter was like made public on a newspaper or something, because other people were aware of it, and people were so impressed by his writing that community leaders pooled their resources in order to send him to America to get a proper education. And so Alexander Hamilton, with hardly a penny to his name, comes to Boston and then to New York City, where he meets Hercules Mulligan. Hercules Mulligan was an Irish-American who would go on to be a big part of the Culper spy ring we talked about last week or the week before. The Culper spy ring were people who were loyal to the United States of America and to George Washington who stayed in New York City while the British were in charge and they fed information to Washington and to the Second Continental Congress. Mulligan was part of that spy ring. And if you've ever seen the Hamilton musical on Disney+, Plus, Hercules Mulligan is a character in that musical. Alexander Hamilton came under the influence of a man by the name of William Livingston. He is considered a founding father. He was a lawyer, a member of the First Continental Congress, and the first governor of New Jersey. Under Livingston's tutelage, I don't know if they're right, under his influence, Alexander Hamilton was able to enter King's College, a college that we now know as Columbia. The name was changed when we no longer had a king. Columbia today is one of the Ivy League schools, so it was a, it was a, by the way, when you hear the term Ivy League, that is a description of nine really prominent schools. It's actually a sporting category. That's, yeah, when, when the, the Ivy League, they play like basketball or football against each other, they're in the Ivy League in the same way KU's in the Big 12. So uh, sometimes people are surprised to find out that like Stanford, Northwestern, and Vanderbilt aren't in the Ivy League. They're prestigious schools, but no, they're not in the Northeast. They're not in this sports league. So, Anyway, bunny trail over. He goes to a college now known as Columbia, at the time known as King's College. When the war broke out, Hamilton joined and then soon even led a student militia company. So he was taking classes. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Here we go. There's a drawing of him in uniform. So they would continue to take classes, but they would train in their off hours right there on the college campus. And he eventually became the leader of at least one of the units. I'm not sure if he was the leader of all of the campus militia or just one unit. In their first actual engagement, Hamilton showed a great deal of bravery. His unit took a British artillery battery at the southern end of Manhattan. So kind of where the Twin Towers once stood, that area, right on on the southern tip. 
his unit then was designated as an artillery unit. They would use those artillery pieces. So then he would go on as a leader of an artillery unit. He was involved in several of the battles we've already discussed, such as the defeats at Brooklyn Heights and White Plains, but he was also manning the artillery at the Battle of Trenton, which was not a defeat. It was a victory. During the Battle of Princeton, which was also a victory, he rushed three of his cannons to Nassau Hall, one of the Princeton halls that still stands today, and he bombarded the building. When Alexander Hamilton bombed Nassau Hall with the cannon that he brought up, 194 British soldiers had been inside the hall. That's why he fired at the hall. 194 soldiers that were inside surrendered. It was an excellent battlefield victory for Hamilton. He then wintered with Washington's troops in Morristown, New Jersey. While in Morristown, he met his eventual wife, Elizabeth Schuyler, the daughter of General Philip Schuyler, one of the wealthiest men in New York, who would go on with Hamilton to be a leader in the Federalist political party. Well, Alexander Hamilton's reputation preceded him. At least two generals recruited him to be their aide-de-camp. That term means someone who is a high-ranking assistant, usually handling office-keeping duties for a general. Alexander Hamilton believed that his path to glory lay in the battlefield, not in being an aide-de-camp. But one general made him an offer that he just could not refuse, and that was George Washington. And so when Hamilton became George Washington's aide-de-camp, this came with a promotion to lieutenant colonel, and Hamilton joined George Washington's quote-unquote family for the next four years. George Washington liked to use that term family to refer to the officers who were closest to him, who would join him on war councils, the people he could trust, the people who he was closest to, who he would eat meals with, etc., etc. As Washington's aide-de-camp, Hamilton engaged in communication with the Second Continental Congress, as well as multiple state political leaders from multiple states. He also maintained communication with all of the generals. He was involved with diplomacy, intelligence, spy master work, and sometimes he even issued orders in George Washington's name. This wasn't nefarious. It got to the point where Hamilton, with 100% confidence, knew exactly what George Washington would want to have done in this or that circumstance, so he would just issue the order in Washington's name. It was in this role as Washington's aide-de-camp that Alexander Hamilton was at Valley Forge. He developed a great disdain for weak central governments just like his boss, and he grew to despise the Second Continental Congress's inability to provide for the army. While in Valley Forge, one of Alexander Hamilton's best friends was the Marquis de Lafayette. And he is the second immigrant we will look at today. Of the three we look at, Lafayette might not necessarily be an immigrant. He came here for a time and then returned home. And his story about how he was involved with the French Revolution, how he spent some time in prison, 
all that is very interesting. We're not going to get into that today. We're just going to get into his time leading up to Valley Forge. His full name was Marie-Joseph Paul-Yves Roche-Gilbert de Mortier de Lafayette, the Marquis de Lafayette. And since that is a long and pompous title, we will from here on just be referring to him as Lafayette. Lafayette was a transitional figure. He was part of the American Revolution. He was also part of the French Revolution. And then late in life, he was even part of another French Revolution in 1830 called the July Revolution. Lafayette was both an aristocrat and a reformer. In some ways, he was a liberal. In other ways, he was a conservative. He was a very transitional figure. Born on September 6, 1757, so either just a little bit younger than Alexander Hamilton or two years and a little bit younger than Alexander Hamilton. Probably just a little bit. Lafayette's father died in battle when he was only two, so Lafayette never really knew the elder Marquis de Lafayette. The elder Marquis de Lafayette died at the Battle of Minden in Germany, which was part of the Seven Years' War. So the elder Marquis de Lafayette was killed by the British. The younger Marquis de Lafayette studied at the University of Paris at the ripe old age of 11 and joined the French army at 13. His mother died in 1770 and he also lost a grandfather and an uncle. So much like Hamilton, Lafayette faced a lot of tragedy with the loss of close loved ones and family members. But as opposed to Hamilton, Hamilton kept getting poorer with each loss, and Lafayette just kept getting wealthier and wealthier. He inherited all the titles, lands, and incomes from both sides of his illustrious family. His mother's side of the family, they had an illustrious lineage as well. But the Marquis de Lafayette line traces back at least as far as the wars of Joan of Arc. So they had a long and illustrious line. And with him being basically the sole survivor from those lines, he now had all the lands, titles, and incomes from all of that totaling about 120,000 livres a year. Now I'm not entirely sure how to calculate exactly how much money 120,000 livres was then, certainly not trying to compare that to today, but I do know that that was a lot of money. At the age of 14, Lafayette was made a court officer in a ceremonial unit that served directly in the king's court. And while he was doing this, he continued his studies. At the age of 16, he married the 14-year-old Marie-Adrienne Francois, the daughter of the Duc de Noailles, a nobleman and a scientist. The marriage between Lafayette and Adrienne was an arranged marriage, and the Duke actually wanted the marriage to take place two years older, when Lafayette was merely 14 and his daughter was 12. The reason appears to be that the Duke did not want Lafayette to grow old and perhaps taller, stronger, more handsome, and to have more opportunities for him to be married off to someone else, the Duke wanted his daughter to be married to the Marquis de Lafayette. 
but the bride's mother successfully delayed the arranged marriage for at least those two years. Nevertheless, both were married young, Lafayette at 16, Adrian at 14. Lafayette became a Freemason and continued his studies and his military career. And all the while, he started to become fascinated with the North Americans' struggle against the British. And, perhaps, he harbored a grudge against the British because of the death of his father. Meanwhile, American diplomats were in France, mostly just being frustrated in their attempts to forge an alliance with France. This was at the point where the United States was working hard to try to develop an alliance with France, and yet France wasn't going to budge until they believed that America could actually win the war, because the last thing France wanted to do was to forge an alliance with a loser, and therefore be on Britain's bad side, and be at a full-scale war against Britain because of the alliance, an alliance that never should have happened because America was going to lose anyway. That's what France did not want. They wanted to see evidence that America could win the war first, so they didn't even allow official negotiations until after Saratoga. But this is before Saratoga. And so the American diplomats in Paris basically had a little side gig going on where they recruited experienced military officers to go join the fight. Unfortunately, the vast majority of these officers were basically worthless. They were full of delusions of grandeur. Most of them lied about their credentials. They believed that they were going to go over, fight gloriously, and be paid handsomely. Well, George Washington, as well as the Second Continental Congress, most of the army, and most political leaders, grew to hate these guys. Probably the number one offender in recruiting these worthless fellows was the American diplomat Silas Dean. And yet it was Silas Dean who recruited the young Lafayette. And he wanted to give Lafayette the rank of Major General, which is many ranks higher than what his rank was in France at the time. However, the British knew what was going on, and they threatened to go to war with France if these French officers and French supplies continued to be sent to America. And France had to make a decision. Either they were going to go ahead and forge the alliance with a country that has not proved that they could win yet, or they needed to knock it off and to prevent war prematurely. And so France bowed to Britain's threats and they put an end to the supply of French officers and supplies going to America. Lafayette, who was excited to go, was ordered not to go. Instead, he and some of his friends went to London, where they met the French ambassador to Great Britain. They even met King George III. They made some important connections. Then they came back to France and hid from their superior officers. And then snuck off to join the American fight. Lafayette ended up investing quite a bit of his own money in this endeavor. Fearing that the French government might try to prevent his trip, he actually had to buy the ship and hire the crew to make the journey. The captain wanted to go to the West Indies and unload the cargo that they had on board. But Lafayette feared that he would be arrested by the British the moment they found out he was there. So, 
he bought all of the cargo on board and had the ship sent straight to America. He landed in South Carolina, where I assume he tried to unload the cargo, if not for a profit, at least to try to mitigate some of his losses. Two weeks later, he went to Philadelphia to present himself to the Second Continental Congress. Well, the Second Continental Congress, by this point, was weary of all these French officers that Silas Dean kept sending them. Most of these guys couldn't speak English, had very little desire to learn, and had little to no relevant military experience. The fact is, Lafayette might have met the same response, except he had some things going in his favor. For one thing, as a true Maquis, the Maquis de Lafayette, he really was a pretty high-ranking person within French society, even if his military rank didn't quite match up to the major general rank that Silas Dean believed he deserved. Lafayette also offered to serve in the war without pay. That was something that went against the expectation, as most of these European wannabe generals expected to be paid handsomely when they came over here. Lafayette also came with the recommendation of Benjamin Franklin. Franklin apparently was a little less liberal with his recommendations, and not necessarily recommending a bunch of guys that turned out to be worthless. Therefore, Benjamin Franklin's recommendation carried a lot more weight. Lafayette also knew some English, apparently from his education, but he also worked on his English on the voyage over to America, and he would be fluent in English by the end of his first year in the United States. He was also a Freemason, which opened many doors, including with George Washington, who also was a Freemason. Lafayette met George Washington in Philadelphia while Washington was in town to brief the Continental Congress, and the two bonded immediately. Washington loved the young man's enthusiasm, the intellect, his courage. Lafayette, in fact, would go on to become the one member of Washington's military family who George Washington seemed to actually love like a son. This was an honor that never seemed to be granted to Alexander Hamilton, even though Similarly, the both men had lost so many family members. Both young men probably could have used such a great father figure as George Washington. And yet, for whatever reason, Hamilton was always more of an asset to George Washington, both as aide-de-camp and later as Washington's Treasury Secretary, the first Treasury Secretary of the United States under the Constitution. But Lafayette was always treated more like a son. Well, as it worked out, the Second Continental Congress confirmed upon Lafayette the rank of Major General. The Second Continental Congress saw this rank as honorary, but Lafayette did not see it as honorary. However, he did not push his ambitions. Upon arrival in George Washington's camp, he announced, I am here to learn, not to teach. Lafayette was engaged in battle and was wounded in the leg during the Battle of Brandywine. But he held his command and organized an orderly retreat before seeking treatment for his leg. Because of this, George Washington cited him personally for bravery. Lafayette returned to the field two short months later, was involved in a small victory over Hessian forces in Gloucester, New Jersey, on November 24, 1777. He then joined George Washington in Valley Forge.
during the winter, he was sent to arrange a proposed second invasion of Quebec that winter. But upon arrival in Albany, Lafayette concluded that there were just too few men for the endeavor. And, by the way, a winter campaign in Canada was a very bad idea. This could have been devastating for Lafayette's career and his reputation. It could have been seen as a sign of cowardice, that he was unwilling to take command when he had the opportunity. Therefore, it was a courageous move for him to tell the truth. He could have been accused of cowardice and could have ended his career right then and there. Luckily, though, both George Washington and the Second Continental Congress agreed with his assessment. By March, the Franco-American alliance was ratified and announced. This was a great moment for Lafayette. Now, he would become the bridge between allies. Jumping ahead a little bit, Lafayette was still in America illegally at this point. He was not allowed to leave France to join the American war effort. Even after the alliance between France and the United States ratified Lafayette's position, he still wasn't really supposed to be here. So at a certain point in the war, he returns home. And when he gets there, he is placed under arrest for a few days. I believe it was house arrest, if I'm not mistaken, at which time he was pardoned and then went on some kind of fancy hunting trip with the king. He really didn't have to pay any penalty for disobeying the law when he first went to the United States. We, I'm sure, will talk about Lafayette more later in this class, but now let's move on to our third immigrant in this discussion. So the three immigrants we are discussing are Alexander Hamilton, the Marquis de Lafayette. So now we will discuss Baron von Steuben. His full name was Friedrich Wilhelm August Heinrich Ferdinand von Steuben. From now on we will refer to him as Baron von Steuben. He was born in 1730, so unlike the other men, he was not young at Valley Forge. He was nearly 50 at Valley Forge. Baron von Steuben grew up a bit of a military brat, following his father to military campaigns in places such as Crimea and Austria. As a soldier himself, he served during the Seven Years' War against the British, the same war where Lafayette's father died, the same war where George Washington got military experience in North America. The war at that time in North America was called the French and Indian War. Von Steuben rose to the rank of captain, and served as an aide-de-camp to Frederick the Great, the King of Prussia. I don't have time to go into Frederick the Great here, but needless to say, he was, he was and is still considered an excellent military strategist. I mean, obviously, you don't get the term the Great for nothing. He ended up becoming a legendary king in Prussia, which is one of the constituent parts of the greater German lands. Following the war, though, von Steuben was laid off. Prussia no longer needed a military the size that it was, and so Baron von Steuben unfortunately lost his job. He served in a political appointment. In 1764, Steuben became the Hofsmarschall to First Josef Friedrich Wilhelm of Hohenzollern Heckingen. And I'm not going to try to pronounce that again. I'm pretty sure I butchered it already. 
it was during this time that he began styling himself as Baron. There does not appear to be any evidence that Baron von Steuben as an office of nobility ever really existed. He had a professional contact with a French general, the Comte de Saint-Germain, and this man, the Comte de Saint-Germain, introduced Baron von Steuben to Benjamin Franklin. Now, by this point, European officers, expecting to be given a high rank and high pay, had become a big issue in the United States. Not only were many of these men unworthy of the promotion, but the very fact of promoting such men over qualified Americans had become a sore point. You see, one of the things about Valley Forge is, in our popular recollection of it, a ragtag group of boys goes into Valley Forge and a well-trained army comes out, and that is certainly true. We're going to talk about Baron von Steuben's training program that helped mold the army. But one of the reasons why the army that comes out of Valley Forge is so much better than the army that goes in is because it's older and more experienced. The Valley Forge, it, not necessarily chronologically, but it basically is about halfway through the war. So everybody who fights before Valley Forge, they're younger men. They're, they, haven't, they don't have as much experience. All these same men who fight later in the war have a lot more experience. And so you'll have young men who might be barely old enough to join the military around Lexington and Concord, who by the time of Yorktown have accrued enough experience that they ought to be generals. The longer we go on in the Revolutionary War, the less and less we actually need any experienced Europeans to come in and take those officer roles. And so Franklin had to inform Steuben that he could go to the United States, and as far as Franklin was concerned, he would be welcome to do so, but he would have to go as a volunteer. This irritated Baron von Steuben, who returned home mad. It is unclear exactly what happened next. What we do know is that he was released from the Prussian military. The speculation was that he was discovered to be a homosexual, or that he was accused of being a homosexual, whether he was one or not. Many historians and biographers who've looked at his life do accept the story that he was a closeted homosexual. In fact, by the standards of the late 1700s, he actually was living a quite out lifestyle. By today's standards, he would have to be considered closeted. He was not officially out with his sexuality, but his biographers tend to consider him to be someone who wasn't really necessarily hiding his sexuality. He just wasn't explicit about it. We do know that he never married, he never had any children, and he did not maintain any family connections with anybody still in Europe after his immigration to the United States. His official heirs were three young military officers who served with Baron von Steuben, and it is unclear if these men or any one of these men were ever more than friends. In fact, he was never actually arrested for homosexuality in Prussia, and homosexuality was an arrestable offense at this point. What we do know is that his life in Europe was over, and so he accepted the offer to go to America. Benjamin Franklin sent with him a letter of recommendation 
with a slight exaggeration that Baron von Steuben was a lieutenant general in the Prussian military, which would give him a rank equal to George Washington's own rank. It's unclear whether this was an exaggeration or perhaps a misunderstanding or a mistranslation of some kind. Von Steuben was commissioned by the Second Continental Congress as a major general, so the same as Lafayette. He was commissioned as a major general in February and was sent to Valley Forge. In Valley Forge, he was assigned the role of Inspector General. In this role, he did a lot of good for the American war effort. He enforced strict bookkeeping, which led to much better accounting of resources. This, in turn, prevented much corruption. He also arranged the camp in a more logical order. Up to this point, men would often go to the bathroom basically just steps away from where they lived and where they ate. Steuben made sure that latrines were placed on the opposite side of the camp from the kitchens, with the latrines being downhill. Up to this point, dead animals, either the victims of hunting escapades, or more often than not, unfortunately, what would happen is like a horse or some other beast of burden would die for lack of food and or for the cold during the winter, and the dead animals would be slaughtered to take the whatever usable meat was available, and the rest of the animal would just be left there to rot, which of course led to much disease. In fact, this is now probably a good time to mention, in Valley Forge, 12,000 American soldiers go in and 2,000 of them die. We also know that Valley Forge was full of a whole lot of camp followers, including families and wives of these men. And it is unclear how many of them died from disease and malnutrition and weather-related issues as well. We do know that there was a lot of death. And part of it was because of the cleanliness of the camp. People were basically eating where they went to the bathroom, and the animals they slaughtered were left to rot basically where they lived. Under Baron von Steuben, dead animals were properly disposed of. He also drilled the men and trained them in up-to-date European military science. This got the men in much better shape, but more importantly, the men learned how to maintain discipline and cohesion in battle. He did this by selecting 120 of them to act as an honor guard. These men would be trained up perfectly in exactly the methods that Baron von Steuben expected. Then, with these men doing things right, he used them as a demonstration for the rest to understand how to do this or that discipline that Baron von Steuben was trying to train them. For instance, Baron von Steuben trained the Americans on how to use bayonets effectively. Up to this point, it is reported that most Americans didn't really know what to do with the bayonet and treated it as like a pocket knife. They would use it to cut and to cut meat and, and eat it, to use it like a fork or a spoon. He trained them on how to use bayonets effectively. Now, at this time, there's no such thing as automatic rifle fire. In fact, most of these muskets would have to be loaded individually, which would involve taking the musket off of your shoulder, putting it usually if the reenactments are correct, you put it butt down on the ground and you have to put the 
powder and the bullet and you have to jam it in there, ram it into the proper place and then after all that's done then you set the, the flint lock or whatever firing mechanism you have and then you get the gun and put it back on your shoulder and then you're ready to fire again and that could take even if you were really skilled in all of that that could take 30 seconds to a minute to accomplish all that and if you weren't super skilled on it that could take more than a minute between shots and so more often than not armed men once you fired your bullet you probably don't have enough time to really fire more bullets and so what a musket with a bayonet on the end of it really is is like a spear that you can use to fight in battle but your spear happens to be able to fire at least one bullet and if you ever find time during the battle to reload it then you have yet another bullet to fire from your spear and so with a bayonet on the end of your gun you have it not necessarily as a spear that implies you throw it think of it more like a sword like a like a long sword not like a, a sword you hold in your hand just what I'm trying to say is a properly trained military with bayonets on the end of their muskets can still keep fighting effectively even after they fired their shot and so this is just one way in which the American men at Valley Forge were trained with better methods and better ways of fighting and protecting themselves, feeding themselves, keeping themselves clean and avoiding disease. Under Baron von Steuben, they learned all of that much better than they had beforehand. So, from memory, I'm going to try to talk about the Conway conspiracy. There's not a whole lot to it. It's just Thomas Conway was one of the generals, and there were a handful of people who really thought that George Washington wasn't doing a very good job. And to a certain degree, they, they had a point. 1777 was not a good year for Washington. There was a lot of loss involved. But in retrospect, he was doing just fine because what Washington needed to do was survive. They needed to last long enough to make the British sick of fighting this infernal war. That's what they needed to do. And so Washington's armies were never really destroyed. They would lose battles and retreat. They would lose battles and retreat. And occasionally they'd win a battle, and that's great, but they would lose battles and retreat. He wasn't losing the war. He was losing battles. There's a very big difference. But Conway was one of the men who sent letters around and tried to encourage political leaders and military leaders to maybe raise the idea of maybe we need new leadership. And he had a man in mind that he wanted to put in charge, and that was Horatio Gates because Gates had just got done with Saratoga and did a really good job. And Saratoga was a really good victory for American forces. And so there was this political movement to try to remove George Washington from power. Washington, obviously he wasn't fired, and he never really made a big public issue about it. He never really addressed the concerns. He didn't demand heads to roll. But he also never really seemed to forgive. So, for instance, Benjamin Rush, who we've mentioned here before, the doctor out of Philadelphia, in a fit of frustration, probably in, the, in 1777, writes a letter to Patrick Henry. Now, Rush was young and impulsive and super intelligent, but he was very impulsive, and sometimes he would write things which he probably should have written to a diary and then set on it for a little while, and then maybe if he still felt necessary, then send it on. So he sends a letter to Patrick Henry 
for reasons unknown, Patrick Henry didn't even recognize the handwriting. It's not like they were close. They were from different states. They had barely even known each other. And basically just complaining about Washington and maybe it's time for new leadership kind of thing. And not long after he sends this letter, he forget he even sent, sent the dang thing. And especially as the war keeps going on, he actually goes on to become a very big fan of Washington and what Washington is able to do. And he was one of the people who was pushing for Washington to become president once the Constitution gets ratified. But Washington never forgave Benjamin Rush. Never, never did. Because Patrick Henry, as a good friend to Washington, forwarded the letter to Washington and said, I'm not entirely sure who sent this. Like, I don't recognize the, the handwriting. Apparently, Rush didn't sign it. Uh, Washington recognized the handwriting. Because Rush, at this point, was functioning as one of the three... The Continental Congress made a botch of this. They, they, they hired three different doctors who all disliked each other. Now, Benjamin Rush didn't dislike the others as much as the others disliked Him. everybody. Well, they, so that's a, they, uh, I forget their names, but they were two men who were both high-ranking professors at the medical college in Philadelphia. Both had recruited Rush, so they didn't, uh, they didn't hate Rush like they hated each other. But they were often frustrated with Rush because they would hope that Rush would side with them in, the, in their feud over who would be the, the, the head of the, this medical college and who would be the, America's greatest physician. Now in time, Benjamin Rush would go on to be recognized as America's greatest physician during this time. But So yeah, these doctors really didn't like each other and all three of them were put in charge of like different zones of the war. And so Rush basically was one of the highest ranking military medical professionals during the war. So he and Washington interacted Washington recognized the handwriting, and he was not happy with this. Like I said, Rush forgot he even sent the dang thing. Anyway, the Conway conspiracy never really gained a lot of traction. Washington had friends in the Second Continental Congress, people like John Adams, who had no intention of giving the power of the army to somebody. There were already people who were worried Washington might be a potential dictator. Like, he, if, the, if they go on to win the war, which they did, if Washington wanted to, he could have marched into Philadelphia or New York or whichever city was the capital at any given point, and he could have just declared a military dictatorship, and it would have worked. People like Adams certainly weren't going to give that kind of ability to people who had already showed the willingness to do that. Gates was more apt to those kind of delusions of grandeur than Washington, who was a little bit more grounded. It's interesting to compare Washington and Napoleon because Washington basically was in the exact same position as Napoleon Bonaparte after successful campaigns. And whereas Washington decided to officially resigned as military commander and went off to be a humble and a farmer who was losing his money, Napoleon decided to place a crown on his own head and declare himself the great emperor of all France. So... They're very different men, both extremely historically significant, but it's no shock that the country Washington goes on to lead still exists under the government that Washington was under, and the country that Napoleon went on to lead has changed governments half a dozen times since then. They've gone from 
kingdom to republic to empire to kingdom to republic to empire, kingdom, republic, kingdom, and then republic. The 1800s were, and the late 1700s were, a lot of French revolutions. And the Americans, we had one revolution. So, yeah, Conway's career was basically over at that point. Gates basically had to disavow the whole thing. He would go on to keep serving in the American Revolution, but he never had quite the same standing that he had after Saratoga. All right, so the winter encampment and the occupation of Philadelphia lasted into the late spring, almost as if neither side really wanted to break the peace. So if you're in winter quarters, by the time you get to like March, you can go off to... Winter's done, you can go off. But neither side broke camp until like June. They stayed in camp for a long while. It is also possible that the Americans and the British were waiting for each other to make the first move. So the battles of 1778, there were fewer of them because they started later. And there wasn't a massive change in fortunes. The Americans, though, were now a more professional and formidable army after Valley Forge. So the British continued to win their fair share of battles. So, for instance, Barren Hill on May 20th. 78, Cobble Skin in New York on May 30th, and the Battle of Wyoming, which is confusing because it's in Pennsylvania. The Battle of Wyoming in Pennsylvania on July 3rd. The British won all those battles. And the Americans didn't win a whole lot of battles, but in 1778, if you follow the list of battles on Wikipedia, you'll notice a, a significant uptake in the one word, inconclusive. Fewer battles are ticked off as British victories in 1778. So here's a list of battles that are are considered inconclusive. Monmouth, which was a major battle in New Jersey on June 28th. The Battle of Rhode Island on August 29th. And the Battle of Chestnut Neck in New Jersey on October 6th are all deemed as inconclusive battles. So that was the battle, you know, that's not all the battles. I'm not covering every battle. But that's the battles of 1778. The British still win their fair share. But the Americans make it a lot harder for Britain to win. They're a much better army at this point. George Washington's army settles down for their fourth winter in Middlebrook, New Jersey. They settle down on November 30th, 1778. By this point, von Steuben has already perfected his method in Valley Forge. And in Middlebrook, he's able to continue what he what worked so well at Valley Forge. So this time, the huts are built in nice, neat little rows. The latrines and the kitchens are separate. Training starts from the first time they, you know, so they spend the whole winter encampment training and getting better. And Steuben writes all of his expertise down into a book that goes becomes known as the Blue Book, which would serve as the United States Army's official book of camp discipline at least until the end of the Mexican-American War. So Baron von Steuben, it could be argued that he's probably the second most important general on the American side during the war. Probably Washington and then probably Baron von Steuben. So as Washington is settling down for the winter, and this is another long winter, they don't break camp until June 3rd, 1779. Probably another one of those cases where Both sides are kind of waiting for the other to make the first move. Well, the British make a different move. While Washington is settling down for his fourth winter, Great Britain decides to turn their attention to the south. 
So they begin their, quote-unquote, their southern strategy with the capture of Savannah, Georgia, on December 29, 1778. And that is where we'll pick up next week, where we'll talk about the British southern strategy. Next week, we'll cover the rest of the war up to Yorktown. And then after that, we'll talk about Yorktown and the legacy of the war before we move on to the Articles of Confederation. have enjoyed this production of the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. The Blue Collar Scholar is written recorded edited by Will Rice. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. The use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.